Buongiorno, and welcome to the Global Podcast, where we keep you up to date on the latest trends and insights on diplomacy and international development. I'm your host, Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Techum Global Consultancy, based here in London, which produces this series. In this podcast, I sit down with thought leaders, diplomats, and experts on the field, as well as provide analysis from our own team at Pax to talk more about the need for diplomacy in international development in order to foster political will around greater social impact and good. So grab your headphones and let's get on with the show. On today's episode of the Global Podcast, we're going to explore U.S. foreign policy and the priorities that will be meeting with U.S. President-elect Joe Biden once he assumes the presidency in January 2021, following the most memorable presidency, to say the least, from Donald J. Trump. With Trump's America First stance, it has seen the United States take a more insular approach when it comes to engaging globally, and has had a heavy toll diplomatically for the United States, as well as in terms of global development, with moves to cut funding on maternal health programs, as well as the removal from the Paris Climate Change Agreement among them. President-elect Joe Biden is an internationalist to the core, but as he assumes the office, there are a list of challenges that he must address in order to help resuscitate the U.S.'s standing once more. Joining us to discuss these challenges are Dr. Stephen Heidemann and Paul O'Brien. Steve Heidemann holds the Janet Wright Ketchum 1953 Chair in Middle East Studies at Smith College, with a joint appointment in the Department of Government as well. He is also a non-resident senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy of the Brookings Institution, and from 2007 to 2015, he held a number of leadership positions at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C., including Vice President of Applied Research on Conflict and Senior Advisor for the Middle East. Paul O'Brien is the Vice President for Policy and Advocacy at Oxfam America, where he oversees research, policy, advocacy, and campaigning work to influence the U.S. government and U.S. corporations. His newly published book, by the way, Power Switch, How We Can Reverse Extreme Inequality, is available now as well for purchase on Amazon. So I do recommend you purchase that post this episode. So gentlemen, welcome to the Global Podcast. Thanks for having me on. This is Paul. Thank you very much for having me as well. This is Stephen. Great. Well, uh, let's let's get into the nitty gritty as I like to baptize each episode with to get into it and saying it goes without saying much that there are a number of pressing issues facing President-elect Biden when considering foreign policy. Um, and especially when he comes into the Oval Office, he'll have a lot to crack on with. Uh, but Stephen, I, I want to start with you first and discuss perhaps the key priorities when it comes to foreign policy and actually take it towards the Middle East, uh, given that will be the focal point for this discussion. Uh, the, the Trump administration has had a uh, heavy play when it came to the Middle East, and, and Biden will have to pick up from there. But basically, what are the key challenges for Biden regarding U.S. foreign policy within this very delicate region? 
Well, I think the Trump administration has left a, a laundry list of issues for the Biden administration to contend with, uh, even acknowledging that it's likely to give emphasis first and foremost to the domestic uh, concerns that that uh, his administration will confront when he takes office. They range from what to do with Iran and the joint comprehensive plan of action that uh, the Trump administration withdrew from ra rather brusquely with no seemingly no clear sense of uh, how to redefine a relationship with Iran that would lead to an improved outcome in terms of Iran's uh, nuclear program. The Biden administration will also have to figure out how to deal with the multiple conflicts underway in the region, in Libya, in Yemen, in Syria, uh, each of which has had significant consequences for neighboring states and contribute uh, to a generalized environment of, of turmoil and, and instability. It will need to figure out uh, what to do about uh, Israel and Israeli-Palestinian relations because the recent wave of uh, uh, peace deals negotiated between Israel and a number of Arab states in the Gulf and in Morocco uh, have seemed to eclipse possibilities for the Palestinians to achieve any kind of significant progress toward a two-state solution. And in fact, whether the U.S. remains committed to a two-state solution um, is a question that the Trump administration will leave behind when it departs on January 20th. So there's an enormous set of issues. And, and I think one of the biggest questions for the, for the Biden administration will be where did Trump administration uh, policies leave opportunities for the U.S. to reset and to move forward along different lines? Where has the Trump administration, in effect, boxed uh, the Biden administration in, narrowing its room for maneuver? And and I think if I wouldn't be at all surprised if, if the senior foreign policy team were at, at this moment uh, doing an assessment to try to figure out precisely where that balance lay. Precisely. And the balance particularly is important to find. But at the same token, as you've indicated, it's putting into question the two-state solution that in order to bring proper peace, as one would like to say, or peace or some sort of negotiation on the table, uh, taking a look at, for example, this so-called peace deal between the Arab states that uh, the Trump administration is quite proud of of harking this is this is talking about that negotiation with the uae and bahrain and then suddenly sudan and morocco coming in and establishing a visible uh, diplomatic relations uh, with israel obviously uh, a biden administration coming in and and trying to pull that away would, would make absolutely no sense this is it, it's it, it's clearly going to be there um but with that being mine and, and mo multiple other uh, stances that the Trump administration has taken, such as the establishment of, of an embassy uh, in Jerusalem. How can Biden operate within this new paradigm, um, given that withdrawing is not possible as much as uh, Trump had tried to do that with, with the Iran agreement? Well, I think there's a couple of opportunities that the Biden administration could seize. One is simply to make clear that the agreements reached between Israel and a number of Arab states doesn't uh, uh, do anything to remove its responsibility to engage actively in resolving its conflict with the Palestinians, and that there is no sense in which these, these peace deals um, have reduced the urgency of addressing the Palestine question. I think that's one thing, and, and that can come in a number of ways, by affirming the U.S. commitment to the two-state solution in international institutions and in direct bilateral talks with Israel 
by re-engaging with Palestinian authorities, even while making clear that the U.S. has an interest in the renewal and the revitalization of Palestinian leadership, uh, which is which is aging almost as much as as its counterparts in in the U.S. Congress, um, and and so that I think is one important set of signals that need to be sent very early and very clearly. Even if the U.S. does not take the more provocative step of returning the embassy to Tel Aviv or withdrawing from U.S. recognition of Israeli occupation of the Golan, for example. So that's one thing. The other, and, and in some ways I think the more significant step that the Biden administration could take, would be to say to Israel and the Arab states with which it has now reached um, an, an understanding about bilateral ties, that this is an opportunity to move forward toward a regional security architecture that can achieve a, a level of stability in the region that would permit the U.S. to move forward with long-sought uh, aims of, of downsizing its military presence in the region and uh, finding the region less um, less of a place that is constantly requiring U.S. intervention because local conflicts are flaring up. I know that, that uh, Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu, along with the, the leaders of the Arab states that Israel now has relationships with, viewed their ties as a way to, to push back against Iran, to contain Iran, to weaken Iran. But I think the U.S. should take a different approach to these emergent relationships, which is to see them as the beginnings of a new security architecture, which could include recognition of Iran's um, legitimate security interests. We would define those in terms, I think, perhaps differently than Iran, but, but certainly Iran has legitimate security interests. And as the starting point for a diplomatic uh, engagement at a much, much higher level, with a regional security architecture as the aim of what the U.S. would like to see emerge. Well, thank you. I want to come back to to the discussion around Iran a little bit later, but taking this now back onto a developmental approach and taking these questions now to Paul, um, I mean, to say that uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of priorities on Mr. Biden's list is a bit of a is 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 uh, is not taking it uh, quite seriously. There's a lot that needs to be taken into consideration when it comes to international development and the United States' work and the priorities that are key, particularly in regards to U.S. aid and funding uh, and also where the U.S. sees itself when it comes to development. Um, Paul. What are the key challenges that will be facing Biden? There are a slew of them. And given that you have been operating with, under the Trump administration uh, and seeing the reversals that have been taking place, what are the key things that come to your mind? The secret to a great podcast is a robust debate between your the people you've invited. You're in deep trouble <laughs> because I actually agree with everything that Stephen said. Um, so uh, it, I will answer your question. Um and I'm not an expert on on the deals and their implications, but everything he said around our concerns about imbalance, the, the failure to address the Palestinian question in depth, um, the fact that there that the Trump administration may want part of its legacy to be a new normal in which there has been a power switch away from the Palestinian people and towards Israel as they try to move towards a two-state solution. That would be deeply troubling to Oxfam because we don't believe it's the foundation of a lasting peace for either the Israelis or the uh, Palestinians. So on your question, though, um, I wrote the book um, pretty confident that Biden and Harris would win, probably overly so. But I had a sense that as many people as there were that felt Trump was finally a politician who was not an establishment 
uh, elitist. There were even more people who wanted some maturity and principles and values um, behind uh, U.S. policymaking and politics and even and in the in foreign policy space. So it was with you know, some confidence at the time. I predicted he'd win, but I, the book is actually a, a note of concern because it argues that a victory for Biden and Harris does not do much for people uh, on the wrong side of inequality, poverty, and injustice around the world because Biden's own instincts and the nature of American politics will be such that he will he will want to spend a lot of pol- his political capital quote unquote, normalizing the situation, meaning taking us out of the madness that uh, and chaos that uh, was that many folks viewed was at the center of the Trump administration's both domestic and foreign policies. The The problem with that is that reverting to normal in a moment of uh, economic, political and health and at some level climate chaos in the world for most people would be a very bad thing if the United States decided to stop there. What we're going to see in the Middle East and elsewhere in the coming year, and it's not rocket science to to argue this, is first a two-tiered solution in terms of those countries that are awash in vaccines, uh, in some cases having three purchased or more for every citizen. And those, the vast majority of countries in the world, and when you think of places like Syria and Yemen, and for folks in Gaza and in the West Bank, folks who have no access and no hope of access to a vaccine in 2021. You've got um, all of the economic, what some folks are calling secondary, but for many of the communities we work with, they are the primary consequences of this pandemic. Their supply chains shut down, markets closed, lockdowns restricting their ability to work um, and no capacity to be socially distant and therefore uh, crammed either in refugee or uh, displaced settings or in slum communities and large urban areas and poor communities all over the Middle East but also all around the world. Um, It's going to be a very bad year for folks economically. Then you've also got the increased confidence of autocrats Um, who believe that they now have more permissive space to shut down opposition, to shut down freedom of speech, association, and the rights of folks to protect their own security as they um, uh, seek to hold their governments accountable. So uh, today, an organization that I'm very fond of, Civicus, uh, put out, uh, there was actually, they put out a few days ago, but there was a, a post uh, on an Oxfam sponsored blog that found just about eight, nine in 10 people, that's 87% of people, uh, live in contexts around the world where rights are repressed or closing or obstructed in one way or another. Only uh, a tiny fraction of the world's population live in open societies. And then, of course, it is a year and after many years, including the last four where the, the, the impacts of climate, weather and water, and particularly in the Middle East, um, are going to be devastating. So it's a pretty troubling year, um, Gesu, on the, the development front. Um, and the concern is, will Biden have the political capital and the instincts to say, you know what, I am going to normalize things in the sense of bringing some uh, sort of gravitas, seriousness and uh 
uh, internationalist perspective to our uh, diplomatic work and our foreign policy. But if I stop there, our world will be in deep trouble. And frankly, the relevance of the United States in the world will be significantly diminished. I have to do more. And so my hope and the plea in the book is that uh, folks ask him to do this because like any politician, he may agree with us, but he won't do it until it's politically feasible uh, to do so, which means pressure. Um, my hope is that he goes far beyond normalization and names to these challenges as they really are and then tries to position the United States once again as a multilateral leader as it has been in decades past. I'm glad you've said the fear of normalization because I think this seems to be the illusion of many is the fact that once uh, Biden and, and, and Harris come into power, that suddenly life will be dandy again. And there's this illusion that that even during the Obama administration, everything was perfect. Well, well clearly, that, that that is obviously not the case if we look at foreign policy even during uh, the Obama years. And in fact, there is more that needs to be done because of 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 the simple uh, carry on as is and then of course the 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 interesting injection that was the Trump administration now leading to the world in which we find ourselves in uh, normal cannot continue as you've said but th but that also leads one to understand is will there be will is there any signs of hope that within this newly appointed administration or, or anyone who's looking to engage with the Biden administration or swaying him towards that direction to sit to see that the U.S. needs to take development in a different approach and not go back towards the way things were pre-Trump. That to me, I mean, short answer is there are there are small signs of hope. Um, uh, some of the appointments that he's made, it's obviously early days. Um, uh, having somebody like Jake Sullivan as his national security advisor, there are rumors that Samantha Power, Power will be the... Uh, U.S. aid administrator, and she is a serious person who will bring uh, political weight to our developmental agenda. But I also, you know, I've talked to a lot of the transition team folks in different respects, and first, they weren't able to get into the building uh, because of ridiculousness by the Trump folks. But, but having gotten in, the level of chaos that they are finding uh, in, the, in sort of quick fixes just to get things working that they feel they need to do... I did not come away, uh, much as I respected and admired many of the folks who are working 20-hour days now to get us ready, I did not come away with the impression that they have the oxygen or the political wind in their sails to think big ideas. They're not, they're not saying, so we were thinking of setting up a new institution or bringing, um, getting these new authorities or new structures at, at the kind of scale that our world's challenges need. So no, I, I, I'm not currently inspired that all the signals are there. And I, I am a little concerned that international activists are sort of also breathing the sigh of the relief um, and not putting enough pressure on the new um, cadre of policymakers to deliver to the level of need that we're going to see in the world. Well, the good news is that's why we have this podcast episode to hopefully inspire our listeners to probably make that little bit of a push. Uh, taking this now back to you, Stephen, obviously, uh, Paul has indicated the fact that normalization, is, is it, it, I, we can all agree with this, is not going to be the best policy, uh, pun intended, in regards to, to taking it further uh, uh, during the Biden administration. And particularly if we look at the Middle East, normalization isn't going to be particularly the most uh, sustainable approach towards engaging with it, particularly because the Trump administration has been quite, uh, not tumultuous, but quite uh, impactful in, in what it has done in the
the region. That being said, what can be some sustainable approaches which the Biden administration can take to really ensure um, the policies will lead to a proper and meaningful impact um, for uh, for the, the states we engage with within the Middle East? Yeah, it's it's a big question, and I agree very much with with Paul about the obstacles that the Biden administration has to contend with just in, in achieving something that we might call normalization. We we should never underestimate either the need for activists to continue to apply pressure uh, on the Biden administration, or the the scale of the challenges that the administration confronts just in getting us back to a point where we can look beyond the damage of the Trump administration to think about what uh, a more uh, more wide-ranging, more visionary agenda might look like. It, it's a huge lift, and and efforts in that in that regard are going to be strenuously opposed by uh, a Republican Party that has become completely captured by uh, the cult of Donald Trump. So so the challenges are, are significant. Uh, I think in in the Middle East, you know, I I, I in a sort of soundbite fashion that that oversimplifies. We can look to three different things that the Biden administration, I think, will do to revitalize U.S. engagement in the region and and to do so in a fashion that has some hope both of sustainability and of impact. And, and that concerns process and institutions and alliances. And what we saw was a, a Trump White House, which, which, as Paul said, operated in an extraordinarily chaotic and, and haphazard and... Um, in in many cases, just quite bizarre uh, style, with with no clear uh, framework for decision making uh, from from within the executive branch, and and that is clearly going to change. Uh, it's also clear that the U.S. will take international institutions more seriously, and notwithstanding all of the flaws of of places like the United Nations or other international institutions. I think we can take some comfort in knowing that the U.S. will not treat those institutions as as adversaries, as 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 opponents that that need to be cut down to size. So things like funding for the WHO, for example, which could play a more significant role in responding to COVID outbreaks in the region, will again have support from uh, the United States. And then the third. It, pieces alliances and and I think recognizing you know Joe Biden has talked a lot about the US restoring its leadership in the international system and I think that could be a dual-edged uh, sword if if Biden interpreted that to mean that the US needed to again become a kind of dominant actor in the international arena but there are indications that he doesn't mean that that what he means is that the US will bring uh, its influence to bear with other partners to achieve collective solutions to common problems. And if that is, in fact, uh, how the Biden administration intends to rebuild alliance relationships, then I think we could see some sustainability and impact from that uh, that piece of, of how the administration intends to do its work as well. So I, I think, you know, just getting to normal, let's not underestimate how, how heavy a lift that's going to be. And let's look to these somewhat conventional strategies that that the Trump administration just threw overboard um, as as viable pathways for getting us to the normal that will then let us think about what might come next. 
And in regards to bringing back the United States to to its position that that it that it once hold, which in theory still holds, but however we we, we understand that the reputation has been uh, slightly tarnished over the past four years. However, if we look at moves that have been made by the Trump administration, such as the withdrawal of troops from northern Syria, the uh, the withdrawal of support from the Kurdish uh, forces as well, how can uh, the current well, in actual fact, the the upcoming administration under Biden really resuscitate the confidence that key countries and key peoples within the Middle East can have in the United States again, because it can seem that uh, it, it may not be the case given these serious blows and given that Biden may also only last four years until someone potentially uh, much more impactful, uh, quote-unquote, can also come in. How can he really resuscitate that confidence? Well, I think we have to recognize that there's an enormous disconnect between what will be needed by the Biden administration to navigate its relationships with regimes, autocratic regimes in the Arab world that were very fond of the Trump White House, and what it will take for the U.S. to regain credibility, legitimacy, trust among the peoples of the Middle East. Those are two very, very different things. And I'd like to imagine that the Biden administration will be more willing to put the authoritarian rulers of countries in the Middle East on notice that they do not have um, a a carte blanche to treat their own population populations um, abusively, violently, repressively, coercively, uh, and expect that the U.S. will simply go along quietly with that kind of conduct on their part. It seems to me that that if a Biden administration not only talks the talk of engaging again forcefully on issues of rights and political change, um, but, but walks the walk uh, on those issues, it would do a lot um, for its reputation among the people of the region. But it would also mean that we'd be willing to accept a level of tension uh, in our relationships with regimes in the region. And we would need to balance um, areas in which we disagree deeply and are prepared to hold those regimes accountable against areas in which we need the cooperation of those regimes. For example, if we were to take seriously the the effort to construct a new regional security architecture, we would need regimes in the region to uh, participate along with us in, in putting that kind of architecture together. So, so these are all uh, very, very difficult challenges, but I would hope that the Biden administration would not simply look for the easiest path uh, through, which, which I think would be to continue accommodating regimes in the region at the expense of the people of the region. Um, because it felt that was the key to achieving larger diplomatic aims. I think we can chew gum and walk at the same time. I'd, I'd like to see the Biden administration take that kind of approach as it as it settles into uh, its new uh, its new position. And taking the final question back to Paul, then, in regards to to development once more, and I want to bring mention of the sustainable development goals as well, too, which which in theory are, are due in 10 years, and the United States' role with that, and, and Biden's particular role in regards to making some sort of impact within the next four years towards uh, making a bit of a dent into it. 
Paul, what are your hopes that Biden and his administration can, could potentially achieve when it comes to the U.S. responding to the Sustainable Development Goals? I mean, the one interesting case was, despite the fact Trump uh, going against the, the Paris Climate Agreement and his stances towards climate change, there was a slew of uh, U.S. social entrepreneurs that suddenly decided to address it via their own products and via their own solutions and, and sell it to the world and with the United States suddenly playing an interesting role uh, despite uh, the Trump administration's stance. What are what are your hopes when it comes to the United States under Biden with the Sustainable Development Goals? Well, more broadly, you know, as I was listening to you both talk about the security situation in the Middle East, and I'm reminded the United States is currently extended so far militarily that it has some interest militarily in about 150 countries in the world in one way or another not that they're all ongoing conflicts but that there's some some form of military relationship and at the same time if the united states is trying to sit down with countries all around the world now to talk about development issues they're looking at china and they're saying, I'm sorry, but you're not the big player in the room anymore if you want to reach an understanding. So for the United States to even begin to think about being champions of rules-based development, SDGs or any other re-engagement in multilateralism, it has to recognize that the, the world it's re-entering now is a, a very different one than it was four years ago. And that if it is good, you know, there's a fact I've been hearing recently that, that China has poured more concrete in three years in, in this decade than the United States poured in the entire 20th century. And it is, um, its economy now, the last recent quarterly reports in terms of the recovery, it's pretty much back up uh, to speed uh, in terms of the scale of uh, manufacturing output and exports, and the growth numbers aren't far behind. And it has, such difficulties actually finding people who are at risk of COVID-19 in China that it has to do third phase testing in other countries like Brazil and, and so on and so forth and is is very likely to have a vaccine which is able to offer a lot more cheaply, cheaply that doesn't require the kind of uh, cold storage that uh, some of the Pfizer uh, vaccine does and so on. So we may be about to witness in 2021 um, a really significant power shift in terms of where countries are looking to and whose rules they're interested in engaging with. And if the United States wants to be a serious player on the sustainable development goals or anything else, it needs to recognize that there is a fundamental imbalance policy apparatus which is that it's mostly about the fist and not really about what Joe Biden likes to use, which is the hand, uh, the open hand of, of, a, of a relationship. And uh, until it, it sort of has that reckoning, um, it's unlikely to be able to bring the kind of economic heft and coherence across the foreign policy apparatus to be able to deliver a serious alternative offer that could actually yield a really interesting race to the top in, in both China and America, challenging uh, each other and then offering countries um, 
uh, a way forward developmentally for their countries. So that's, you know, that's sort of what's top of mind for me. I don't, you know, the, the SDGs were struggling as a politically relevant tool before the Trump administration or this pandemic. And right now, outside, and I, you know, let's remember they were fostered, I, I, I'm a believer in the idea of the United Nations, but these are all, these multilateral institutions are septuagenarian, and they look at, um, they are struggling along, looking for a breath of life. Yes, he'll come back in and he'll he'll work through the United Nations, probably be a little nicer about the WHO, hopefully uh, free up some of the, the financing power of the IMF and the World Bank. But it's not as if the, the multilateral institutions that we had and the UN in particular were, were up for the developmental challenges of our time uh, before all these crises hit. So I'm not sure that the sort of the incrementalist in Biden, um, again, um, is, is going to find that the SDGs are going to give him a huge amount of oxygen and credibility. Do I, would, do I want to see progress in the SDGs? Absolutely. But I think it's going to need something bigger and fresher uh, in the, uh, the short to medium term to, to really convey that feeling that the United States is back as a force for development. I think what is key between uh, both yourself and Stephen is the fact that the United States is clearly entering a brand new paradigm and it, that is going to be perhaps the, the ultimate challenge for the Biden administration is how does the United States address itself in this new paradigm with new players and new uh, scenarios coming to place where it seems normalization is not only impossible but it, it is just absolutely unlikely. This has been a very fruitful conversation. I hope this does inspire the activists and those who listen to this podcast to see what they can do uh, to take it up and, and make sure that it becomes a proper political will for the Biden administration. But uh, Paul O'Brien and Steve Heidman, thank you very much for coming on the Global Podcast. Thank you. Thanks very Thanks much. Thanks That brings us to the end of this edition of the Global Podcast. I'm Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tech and Global Consultancy, which produces this series. Please do check out our website at www.paxtechumglobal.org. That's P-A-X-T-E-C-U-M-G-L-O-B-A-L.org to discover more about our work. You can also follow this podcast and the work of PAX on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and of course subscribe on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Join us next week for another edition, and until next time, grazie e ci sentiamo presto. Ciao!